0: it's so important, I think, for parents to know that this isn't their fault, you know, sure. but there's nothing that my mother or my father could have said or done to me that would have made me stop when I was in my active addiction. I would have stepped on my mother's neck to get her drugs when I was sick. There's nothing I wouldn't have done. And so the thing that made the biggest difference was love and knowing that I was loved, even though I didn't deserve it is what saved me. But I think that for parents, knowing the difference between loving and enabling is so huge. It's so hard when it's your babies and I get it. But when everybody was chasing me with like a pillow for me to land on before I hit the ground, I was never able to experience the consequences of my actions because I always had the safety net. And it took me like being in suicide watch all alone and looking around and seeing that nobody was coming to save me to want to make those changes for myself.
1: Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Tiffany Jenkins. Tiffany is the hilarious genius behind Juggling the Jenkins, and she has over 6 million social media followers and counting. Tiffany is a wife, she's a mother, she's a best-selling author, a content creator, and a recovering addict. While she is best known for her funny viral Facebook and YouTube videos, Tiffany is incredibly passionate about bringing awareness to mental illness. She speaks shamelessly, openly, and honestly about her past and addiction, as well as her struggles with depression and anxiety, and has been featured on national television shows like The Today Show and The Doctors. Some of the things that we're going to chat about today that I think you're going to appreciate is how she navigated early recovery after incarceration, and how she currently manages her emotions and stress, and what's the hardest thing that she's still grieving. Tiffany's also going to share how she developed faith in God during the most chaotic time of her life. And what was the turning point for her for her transformation? We're also going to get into what the root cause was of her addictive behavior and when did her addiction begin to spiral out of control and how this actually involved her ex boyfriend who was a police officer. Tiffany's also going to share some advice for someone who has a loved one that is struggling with addiction and how to know the difference between showing love and enabling. Our combo is also going to get into how creating content and starting juggling the Jenkins helped Tiffany overcome postpartum depression. And we also talk about her most popular video and why it's so relatable. Tiffany is going to reveal her top parenting tips. And we're also going to talk about different tools to get out of a rut and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Tiffany Jenkins to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Tiffany, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited.
1: I'm excited, too. You are one of the most funny, inspirational, real, vulnerable
0: People. I'm just thinking you speechless with all exactly. of these <laughs> <laughs> Um
1: That I've seen on social media, you get out of jail, you go to rehab, you get into this halfway house, and now you're back in society. You're exposed yeah. to the same environment that led you to being incarcerated on, what, 20 felony drug charges. So, like, what were the things that you did in those moments, in those early stages of your recovery it allowed you to stay so focused and so optimistic to continue to persevere when things got hard.
0: Yeah, I think that first of all going through the rehab was crucial, doing the 6 months of residential treatment because I my brain was so messed up and so broken and I had no clue how to fix it myself. And so I think that was the first stepping stone and then making the decision to go to the halfway house where I was still accountable. So I had the freedom. Like I could come and go as I please, but I was accountable. And having six other women in the house who are on similar journeys as myself, who if I if I feel like I want to use, I just walk out in the living room and I'm like, I want to get high right now. There's somebody there who's like, sit down, let's have some coffee and talk about it. It was it's so crucial for those beginning days to have a good support system. And I did what I think nobody should ever do. <laughs> And that's get involved with a guy right out of the gate as soon as I moved into the halfway house. And he, I mean, he got me pregnant two weeks after knowing him. And so I wasn't in the halfway house for, but two months when I was pregnant. And so that was a big, huge motivating factor for me individually.
1: Yeah, but you hear a lot about people who are in tragic or hard situations like beating an addiction or coming out of something that was a challenge for them. And then they end up having a child and that's what helps them change because it's like as addicts, we don't want to do what's best for ourselves, right? We right. want to do what's best because we're, we're chronic people pleasers. So we'll do whatever you can to please somebody else. And I think for you, it seems like, you know, that having that first kid as much as it was like a, a quote unquote, no, no became like the biggest blessing in disguise for you.
0: Absolutely. I had a pretty good foundation of recovery by then. I, I had 10 months sober between the jail and the rehab, and I knew what I wanted. And at that point, I was so confident in my recovery that finding out I was pregnant was just that little push that I needed to keep going. But it was terrifying, dude. I, I had no job, no car, no money. I had no belongings whatsoever, maybe a pair of shoes. And to find out that now there's this little person in me not only are you not supposed to be doing those kind of activities while living in the halfway house, but I, you know, I couldn't deny it because there was a big growing, but the guy who got me pregnant was also in recovery living in the halfway house. And so I went to him and I, you know, I was just like, Hey dude, I know uh, we just met, but I'm pregnant. And he could have run full speed away and probably should have, but he decided to marry me instead. And even though we were married, we still lived in different halfway houses and kept working on our recovery because I knew that I wasn't done learning how to live sober.
1: Right, right. And this is, I guess, was the the first guy in your recovery journey in your sober life that proved to you that you were lovable, other than your dad, right? Because yes, true. and I think to, what it seemed like to me one of the the turning point for you was when you were incarcerated Christmas day rolls around Aww. and you get this visit from your dad yeah. and it can be, I'm, I'm sure that was incredibly emotional. You, un, you know, there was a lot of uncertainty there because you never know what somebody's going to say. What's the, what was that conversation like? Because I know he said a few things to you in there. Yeah. That was the big stepping stone for you to take your recovery seriously.
0: Absolutely. It was the one I think thing that truly changed my life when my dad came to visit me in jail on Christmas, when I was already so depressed, because when you're in jail and you're like in this dark dungeon and you think about what life was like before, it's like, man, I'll never get that back on Christmas. I was thinking about my other Christmases when me and my sister were kids, you know, opening presents, just so innocent. And it was such a contrast between where I was. So seeing that familiar face, first of all, did wonders for my soul. And then when he said to me, you're my daughter and there's nothing you can ever do to make me think differently of you. I will always love you no matter what. That was the first time that I felt like worthy of being alive. Cause before that, I, I didn't think anybody would ever love me or trust me or want me. And so hearing that my dad still was there with his unwavering love was like, wait a minute, somebody cares. And then he told me he had cancer, which was a bummer. I had already lost my mom to cancer, but then he told me he had 62 days sober because of his diagnosis. And he said, you need to get your stuff together and get out of here so that we can do this recovery journey together as a family. And I, boom, that was it. That was all I needed to hear. My time with my dad was limited. I had somebody out there rooting for me and I had the opportunity to make sober memories with him before he dabbled. That was it. I started writing to rehab, begging them to let me in that day.
1: Hmm. That's amazing. And you kind of got lucky in that you were going, you were supposed to go to this one rehab, right? Yeah. That, that was more like structure driven. It was like a, 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 almost like a leg of the criminal justice system. And then yeah. you end up having this, I mean, I guess you call it like a reconciliation with, with God. So how were you able to develop a relationship and believe in something like that at a point in your life where you really shouldn't, I mean, on, based on where you were at, the ads were so stacked against you. Like, how were you able to develop that blind faith that somebody was looking out for you?
0: I felt like things started happening and I don't even know if I can put into words what exactly the things were but there were little things that were just falling into place. And it started happening as soon as I started meditating on the idea of there being something greater out there. And so I would question it and then something would click into place. And it's like, wait a minute, that can't have happened for no reason. Maybe there's something out there. And then when I would say that something else would click into place. And before I knew it, it was like, this path was being laid out before me and the more that I had faith, that it was going to happen. The more that it did, and I still had so many questions and so much anger, but I knew that not believing in anything wouldn't get me anywhere. And when I did start to believe in something, wonderful things started to happen. And I wasn't all in, it, you know, at that point either. But I, I had faith that something wonderful was going to happen, and it did.
1: Yeah, yeah, and amen to that. And, and thankfully, like god was looking out for you right because there was you could have died like 10 times over right between what you were doing in your drug using days and but then you're in you're in prison and you try to commit suicide multiple times the first time like i like you nearly it seemed like we're gonna die
0: oh yeah and yeah i wanted to more than anything i had to and i was so angry when they saved me because I didn't think it was fair that somebody was making me stay on an earth. I didn't want to be on in a body. I didn't want to be in. It didn't seem fair to me. And, you know, looking back now, I see that that was just another one of those things where there was a greater work at play that I didn't understand. There was a greater thing happening that I couldn't comprehend.
1: Right. Yeah. And I mean, obviously thankfully that it was a botched suicide attempt yeah. And you were able to get put on suicide watch and they took care of you and, and got you through that part because then you started to meet these other people in the prison system that became stepping stones, obviously, for your recovery journey now. And I know one of the main reasons that you wanted to take your own life was because you didn't want to face the pain anymore, the pain of life, the pain of the opioid withdrawal, the pain of like having to come to terms with the choices that you've made. And I know a big part of your drug use and everything that you've done has just been a result of the inability to manage pain and insecurities in a healthy way. Yeah, Like, so you still have a lot of that pain now. Unfortunately, both of your parents have passed. Mm -hmm. You still deal with anxiety, depression. You still deal with these these negative thought patterns. You and I were having a conversation before about, about your health and, Mm -hmm. and why you want to change that. So so how do you manage pain now in a way that it's conducive for your mental health in a way that is pushing you forward in your recovery journey?
0: Yeah. A lot of, I mean, a lot of the pain that I'm experiencing now is stuff that I have always experienced. But prior to now, I didn't have anybody to talk to about it. There was, there wasn't that open dialogue with my parents, like about what I was feeling and thinking. And then when I went through rehab, I was given, some new tools to use. I like examined all these parts of me that were broken and all of these behaviors and learned that I wasn't alone and learned that there was ways to cope. And so now I'm not great at coping with grief, mm. individual, like specifically grief. I don't think that I have mastered that yet. I, I still kind of just use humor and, bury it down somewhere and it surfaces at really weird times, really random times. But as far as anxiety and depression, I have learned first and foremost, that I'm not alone. Secondly, I've learned that reaching out for help is the greatest gift that you could give yourself, your future self, your family, those around you. And we are all different and different things work for all of us. And I think that once I found what worked for me and was able to apply that regularly, when those feelings popped up, It changed my life. I learned about breathing exercises, which is so silly and simple, but truthfully, when I'm in the middle of feeling like I'm going to explode, taking a second to just focus on my breath and reground myself changes everything. In addition to some weird other coping skills that I have, but that's what it is. They emptied my toolbox when I got to rehab. My only coping mechanism prior to that was drugs. So no matter what I was feeling, I reached in my toolbox and numbed it with drugs. And once I got to jail and rehab, they emptied it so I had to put new stuff in it. And mm-hmm. all along the way, I'm collecting stuff to put in there. music, Meditation. Sponsors, friends and recovery. I'm always at it.
1: Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that the, the biggest thing now that you struggle with, with handling, although you do handle it in a way that's fairly productive is grief. Like what are, some of the things as you look back that you're still grieving over that you're, you're, you're dealing with now?
0: I think my mother's a huge one. I didn't even start using it until the end of my mother's life. And I wasn't sure what she knew. We never talked about it. Or if we did, it was rare. Yeah. And so it wasn't until after she passed and I reconnected with family and they told me she knew the whole time, but she knew that she only had a little bit of time left. So she didn't want to ruin it by causing a fight so she never said. And that bums me out because they, you know, I, I have faith that she knows and she's proud of me and she sees what I'm doing, but the logical part of my brain doesn't have proof of that. And so there's always a question mark there, a tiny one, because I know that it's not beneficial to have that question mark. I know that the only thing that benefits me is thinking that she's proud of me, but just not having the opportunity to apologize The situation with my mother allowed me to be more present with my father when he was passing. So I'm grateful for the experience with my mother in that aspect because I knew I didn't want to feel that again with my dad. And I also think I have grief about a lot of stuff in childhood that I didn't address. I didn't have a lot of trauma in childhood. I didn't experience a lot of the horrific things that so many people experience. I think if anything, I just worried so much as a kid that I missed out on a lot of enjoyment because I was too worried about what people were thinking and making people happy. And I worried a lot about my parents dying, which is very ironic.
1: Right. Right. Wow. And thanks for sharing that about your mom and your dad. And and you, well, you mentioned that you didn't have like a traumatic childhood, but just reading from your story, your book. And like, I read a blog post the other day that said like the one thing that you still remember, like it was yesterday was, I think, I forget the exact age. You were like seven or eight. And it was when the police came to arrest your dad. Yeah. That was like the end of your parents' marriage. And I recount seeing that after that, like you just saw this instability with him and his new girlfriend or his, his new partner. And they were fighting and they're, their relationship was super toxic and very up and down and they would tell you everything was fine, but you're, you were observing how, you know, dysfunctional it was. Yeah. And then I think on top of that, you mentioned that you were kind of picked on in school because you started to, to gain weight. Right. And yeah, just played it off and use your humor. So do you, do you feel like looking back now at like that initial drink you had where you felt, that that numb the pain that you think that, was that the pain you think the alcohol was numbing was a lot of that stuff?
0: Well, well until you said that, I thought. <laughs> not what did now I do? You, <laughs> no, maybe, you know, maybe you just open up my eyes to some stuff that I didn't think was that serious, but ultimately maybe did play a big part um, in why I did what I did. But to me, it was, I was super overweight. And I was taller than everyone. And I had these super thick glasses and people always made fun of me. And so I started making fun of myself and, you know, my parent, my friend's parents would take me clothes shopping because I always wore the same clothes. All of these things, I always felt awkward and out of place and I never knew where I belonged. And every minute of my life was spent overthinking every single thing that I had ever said. And so the, when I drank suddenly, it was quiet in my head. I wasn't worrying. I wasn't obsessing and overthinking and being awkward and anxious. I just, it was, I was numb.
1: Yeah. And, and it's, it's super common. And you, and you hear, you hear so many people when they, when least they, they get in the depths of addiction, it's a very similar story where they look back and they'll say something like, oh my gosh, like I tried this for the first time and I could finally be at peace with who I was. I didn't have to worry what people thought of me and I didn't have to worry if I was going to have success and I didn't have to worry what my family situation was going to look like. I just knew I could be comfortable with who I saw in the mirror as long as I was under the influence of a substance. Yeah. Now, I think there's like a this this seesaw effect with 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 when you're using drugs or alcohol where initially you're using the drugs to have fun, fit in, party, but eventually you're using it to deal with the shame of the person you've become or the numb the pain of the fact that you're you're you've now realized that you're making these continual choices that don't align with the person you truly are at your course. So when did that start to change for you?
0: I think that in my addiction when I started dating the police officer. Right. That's when the guilt kind of started setting in because I had another person there who I was fooling every day and taking advantage of every day. So I started feeling guilty and trying to numb it. And that's when, uh, I always picture it like a carousel, but yeah, Seesaw totally makes sense also. I would feel bad about the things that I did the day before. And the only way I knew how to feel better about it was to do drugs. Or I would tell myself, I just have to get enough drugs so that I can be level-headed enough to make a plan to get myself out of this conundrum and then I'll be okay. And that never happened.
1: Yeah. I can imagine when you're living this double life and you're living with a police officer who, you know, at every minute could be like, could catch you. Cause that's like their job really is to catch the people who are, who are breaking the law and you're breaking the law around the clock. You're manipulating him. You're constantly telling lies. You're stealing stuff from him and others. And, he's oblivious to the whole thing. Like, like how the heck did he not know? Like I, 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 I find that super hard to believe.
0: Yeah. And I, people ask me that all the time to be honest with you. I think that somewhere he knew, but when you love somebody and they're looking you in your face and telling you that you're crazy and that what they're thinking isn't true you know, I had to be gaslighting him every minute of the day and manipulating and lying to him every minute of the day. And when love is involved, and in you love somebody so much, you tend to ignore the red flags. And I gotta say, that has to be what happened because you know he would find equipment of mine that I use to do drugs, and I would just explain it away. He just loved me so much, and I think wanted to believe it so much that our, his brain did a weird thing. I. And I've never really thought about this before until this very conversation about gaslighting, because that's kind of a new term to me. And, you know, so I always think about it as the other person gaslighting. But in this situation, I was clearly, obviously, gaslighting him every minute. I would look him in the eyes and be like, what? How can you even say that? You're crazy. There's no way that I wasn't Roy Stangles earlier. And, you know. I had to do that to him 10 times a day and I've never thought about it until this moment. I knew I was lying. I knew I was manipulating. I would start a lie on Wednesday because I knew I would need it on Saturday. Every single minute of my day was spent constructing stories to keep me and the truth about who I was hidden.
1: Right. And I know you had some grief around that. So I guess, so was there any like work you had to do internally? Like, after you got out of rehab to, to heal the relationship, not only with yourself, but so that you could have a healthy partnership with, with your now husband.
0: Yeah. I, I think that I did most of the work in rehab. I did the 12 step program. And so it allowed me to really examine all the choices that I made in the past and my part in it. I didn't think anybody would ever love me again. Um, I remember sitting in jail and being like, once someone finds out what I did to my ex-boyfriend, they're never going to want to be with me. But I think my husband's boyfriend at the time had done so many terrible things in his own way that he knew that he couldn't judge me because he had been where I had been before.
1: We will get you back to this episode of the Adversity Advantage in just one second. But first, I wanted to give a quick shout out to Danette May and Earth Echo Foods. Danette was a past guest on the podcast and shared her incredible story and how it inspired her to create her products such as Cacao Bliss, which I take every day, either in my coffee or in a smoothie. It starts with 100% organic cacao beans that are naturally kissed by the sun, maintaining its miraculous health benefits. Then it's blended with turmeric, MCT oil, coconut, Himalayan sea salt, cinnamon, and black pepper for the perfect blend to make you feel the best you ever have. The result fall in love with a truly decadent, healthy, guilt free chocolate removing your cravings, facilitating weight loss, boosting your energy, and reducing your inflammation with one simple drink. Not only that, it is friendly to keto, gluten-free, paleo, vegan, and vegetarian diets. So go to EarthEchoFoods.com forward slash Doug Again, EarthEchoFoods.com forward slash Doug Check it out for yourself and learn more about the amazing benefits of Cacao Bliss. And when you enter in the promo code Doug at checkout, you'll get 15% off. Now back to the show. Yeah. I, I want to get into like what inspired you to start creating content. But I think first something that was on my mind was I have a lot of parents listen to my podcast. I have a lot of parents that reach out to me about their kids and they're like, like what can I do to prevent so-and-so from using drugs or what do I do if so-and-so comes to me and says they're addicted or how do I know? And, and it's a hard question for me to to answer because it's, it's so complicated and everybody responds differently and there is no magic solution, but like, was there anything you wish that would have happened differently in your childhood that you think could have changed the path of, of your addiction journey?
0: I, that's a, a really hard question. The question you get asked is one of the harder ones for me to answer as well, because there's so many variables, but I do think about it from time to time. And I wonder if I had a name for all of the things that I was feeling. Like if I knew back then that anxiety was a thing and it was a categorized mental illness and that there was help for it. And if I knew that depression was a thing, how differently my life would be if I knew I could get help for this and it didn't have to be that way. And I wasn't as weird as I thought I was. I thought I was the only one going through this. And so I often wonder if I had an outlet, if I would have felt the need to numb myself. So, I, to parents, when I talk to them, I just, when people ask me, are you going to talk to your kids about whether, you know, your past, I always say, yes, I'm always going to have an open line of communication. I'm always going to look out for those signs and tell them like, Hey man, I see that, you know, things seem a little bit off with you. And I just want to let you know that you can talk to me, me too. And if you don't want to talk to me, I've got a cool buddy over here who works at this place and you can talk to him. And I just want them to know that whatever they're going through, that you don't have to go through it alone. And that there's help available because i don't feel like i had that whether or not it would have altered the course of my life or not i'm not 100 percent sure but i think it would make a huge difference
1: right right yeah so yeah because you, you kind of always wonder or look back and wonder what if and um i know in my experience when people have asked me that question i like look back and i say you know if i was dating a hot girl and you know was was thin and had big arms and was athletic and successful or whatever like you know, that's what I would have wanted back then. But now I've been that and yeah. I've had those things and I've still struggled with my yeah. mental health. So it's a catch 22, you know?
0: And it's so important, I think, for parents to know that this isn't their fault, you know, Sure. but there's nothing that my mother or my father could have said or done to me that would have made me stop when I was in my active addiction. I would have stepped on my mother's neck to get her drugs. When I was sick, there's nothing I wouldn't have done. And so the thing that made the biggest difference was love and knowing that I was loved, even though I didn't deserve it is what saved me. But I think that for parents, knowing the difference between loving and enabling is so huge. It's so hard when it's your babies and I get it. But when everybody was chasing me with like a pillow for me to land on before I hit the ground. I was never able to experience the consequences of my actions because I always had the safety net. And it took me like being in suicide watch all alone and looking around and seeing that nobody was coming to save me to want to make those changes for myself.
1: Right. Oh, I want to double click into that love versus enabling topic. Mm-hmm. Cause I think that's important because that's a big struggle for parents is how do you know if you're, how do you know if you're enabling them versus just showing them, just showing them love yeah and like what's the difference so if you could speak to that i think people would really appreciate it
0: yeah i just want to also say that i'm not a professional in anything like i don't have any degrees i didn't graduate high school so everything that i'm saying is just based on my experience as the addict as a mom it's so much harder for me to speak on this subject because when it's your baby i totally understand but as an addict i can tell you that um if you are doing anything that allows them to live comfortably in their addiction. It's probably enabling and people get really upset with me when I start naming things outside of the obvious. So obviously if you're giving them money, that's considered enabling. If you're giving them rides and buying them cigarettes, that's making their life easier in their addiction. And so that's enabling. But when I talk about like giving them a place to sleep at night, uh, parents get really upset because they're like, that's my baby. I'm not going to let them sleep on the street. And like, I get it, that mindset. But I also know that it's taken a lot of people many nights of sleeping on the street to be like, dude, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't live like this anymore. But when I was with my boyfriend, I had a comfortable bed to sleep in. I had money in my pocket. I had food in the fridge, had everything I needed. So why the heck would I want to stop using if I wasn't in enough pain? And I don't know if people necessarily need to hit rock bottom in order to change, but I do know that if you're thinking to yourself, wow, I just made it easier for them to continue using it, probably enabling And there's so many cool websites out there that have resources for people that help them learn the difference between loving and enabling with examples. And I don't know if you ever recommend those on your podcast. I don't want to, you don't, but.
1: No, go for it. I mean, I know there's like, what Al-Anon and yeah.
0: And Naranon. Um, okay. And I, I just, I know it's helped a lot of people. They have groups where like parents get together and they all share their stories and their insight and what works for them and what didn't work for them. And it goes back to that whole thing. Knowing you're not alone in this is so important because as a mom or a dad watching somebody that you love wither away to like a shell of the person that they used to be is the most devastating, heartbreaking thing waiting on that call. And mm. Sometimes just talking to other people who, who've been through it can really help. And they have these groups and they have these links and these resources and this reading material and it's helped a lot of people.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's hard, right? Because there's no easy way to handle a situation like that. It freaking sucks. Mm-hmm. And 9.999 times out of 10, the addicts going to change when the addicts going to change yeah and it sucks because when you love somebody and you really care deeply for somebody you wish you could just shake the crap out of yep. it shake the addiction like how is somebody that you know how, how is this person continuing to make these poor choices when they know or they see how much it's damaging their life and i think it's hard for people who aren't who have never struggled with addiction yeah to see that to, to see that that person who's in that state yeah. Is not the person that you really know them to be.
0: Exactly.
1: They feel so low about themselves. They hate themselves. They hate where they are. And they're making choices based on their level of consciousness. They're ba- They're making choices based on how they feel about themselves on the inside. And I think the more you can come to terms with that and just knowing that, okay, like I need to join a support group. I need to take care of my own mental health. Oh, yeah. I need to do research the better off you'll be in it. But I think there's a couple of things that you, in my experience from when I was a kid that are no-nos, and that is like shaming the person, talking yep. down to them, calling them names, telling them that they're a piece of this or that, no matter how angry you are, because I hate to say this to you, they already feel that way. Yeah. Like when they're in the cycle of addiction and they're in that lowest of lows, they feel like a piece of shit. They feel yeah. like a piece of crap. They feel hopeless. They feel depressed. Like all that's there. And right. I think when people, especially the people that, that that are supposed to love them the most continually remind them of that. It just continues to reinforce those thought patterns.
0: Yeah. And they're like, well, I'm a piece of crap, so I might as well keep doing what I'm doing. And right. But I also, you know, if anybody's listening, I, I want them to know that I get where they're coming from for sure, that place of anger. Yeah. I completely understand. Like when we're in active addiction, our choices are so selfish and so devastating to those around us so i understand the anger i get it and i always try to tell people that like while the anger may be justified if your end goal is to have that person back then finding ways to put that anger aside and lead with love is gonna be the difference in this situation
1: right Right. And I like how you pointed out just to do some research and, and and go to some different resources where people are professionals, because again, like both you and I can only speak for our, from our own experiences based yeah. on the situations and lives that we've lived. And it's tough because what would work for me might not work for you. What would work for the, my neighbor might not work for this. But like, it's just, it's so different. But I know the one thing that works for a lot of people Is getting vulnerable, embracing community, sharing your story, and just opening up and just letting people know that I have problems, I'm struggling, I'm not alone, and neither are you. And that was a big inspiration for you to start to to share your story. So how did that start?
0: Well, it started with after my daughter was born. So I had the kid that I was pregnant with in the halfway house. He was born. And when he was six months old, I was pregnant again.
1: So, this is like 2013, 2014.
0: My son was born in September 2014 okay. on my actual birthday, by the way. And then six months after that, I found out I was pregnant again. My daughter was born 16 months after him. And then two weeks after that, my husband's daughter from a previous relationship came to live with us. And so, in record time, I mean, in the span of two years, I went from being single in a halfway house to a married mother of three. And it was, So overwhelming, I found myself getting depressed, and I like started to resent the kids. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't want to be your mom anymore. I can't do this. It was really a super dark time. So I knew what I needed to do, though, because I'd done it in the past and reached out for help from a doctor. And I started getting help for my postpartum depression. But the one thing was, like, I'd go online to see what other people were doing and how they were coping with motherhood, and everybody looked so good and happy. And like, they knew what they were doing. And by comparison, I felt like I was failing. Hmm. And so my doctor suggested I start writing as a therapeutic outlet, I made the decision to write, and then share it, because I felt like the world needed something real, even if just my friends, any of them were experiencing similar things. So I started sharing a little bit. And then I was amazed at the response. And so then I was like, wow, they're accepting this part of me. Let me share this part of me. And the deeper that I got and the more personal I got, the more people were grateful and would email me. And I was honestly, I was shocked at how many people not only accepted me, but like in a weird way, celebrated all of these parts that I kept hidden for so long. And that really inspired me. And I was like, these people are thanking me for talking about this because nobody's talking about it. And so that's where juggling the jiggings came from. I started then making videos and I wanted to portray a message to people that, you know, social media isn't always real. And a lot of us are really messed up and it's okay to talk about it because that's how things change. And it just took off, man, after that. It just kept growing and it was very overwhelming. But what was happening was there was like a shift. People saw that it was okay to admit you're a little messed up it's okay to admit you don't know all the answers. That's a big thing, the world everybody you know thinks they know everything, and admitting like I actually don't know the answer to this. can you help me figure it out and that's what the community was, and it was incredible
1: hmm. wow and and it seems to me that people just love uh, how real you are, like how honest you are, and also your sense of humor that you portray during this whole thing. But I think my question along that is i don't know if you've been asked this before but you used comedy and humor as a kid to kind of hide and numb a lot of the pain that you went through yeah so do you ever find yourself doing that now yes if so like (laughs) do you catch yourself and try to say okay like this is something i need to work on or how does that work with what you do today
0: i i feel like when you use comedy to put like give a message people listen more if i were to just sit on my page and lecture people about why drugs are bad and people it it would be snooze fest but if i make them laugh and do it in a weird way they're engaged and my humor is definitely still a coping mechanism in ways but i'm afraid that it's so deeply ingrained Mm. in my dna that there'll never be another way i can't be serious for too long it makes me painfully uncomfortable so i have to like Relieve the tension with a joke or something, and uh, it's gotten me to where I am. And I, I don't, and but I do definitely have a wall up still around right. people. It's really hard for me to truly let people in to see the real me. Part of me is because I'm afraid they're not going to like what it. they see. It's very weird when the internet is constantly praising you and telling you how amazing you are. Telling you, you saved their life and you're their hero, and all of this stuff. And it's like, whoa, wait a minute. Like, I couldn't even get out of bed this morning because my thoughts were so dark. Like, I don't know how you're saying that to me right now. And I've got this very weird imposter syndrome thing going on where I feel like I've got everybody fooled constantly. And so that's my biggest struggle, I think, is trying to keep the bar low and make sure everybody's taking me off of their pedestal. It's a constant. Not battle, but it's just I constantly have to tell people there's no difference between me and you. I wasn't born with special DNA that allowed me to get clean or allowed me to talk about my problems. We all have the ability. And, you know, just letting them know that I'm the same. I've gotten really good at just screaming out my problems as soon as they come up. I have to. As soon as I start to feel crazy, I just I yell it out. So whoever's around me knows. And I'm feeling unstable. I'm super open about it. I have to be. I can't sit on things nowadays. Resentments, anything. If I ever was not going somebody and they're bugging me, I have to tell them right then and there because I can't move on with my life pretending like everything's okay. I'm not.
1: Right, right. And, and I know one of the the videos that has done super well for you that I think a lot of people relate to, I watched and I totally relate, was this, like if your brain had a like a, a morning, if you had a morning meeting with your brain, what that would look like. And I think a lot of people who are listening to this are gonna relate to that because I think most people struggle with some form of this. So if you could first, I guess, you know, talk about the concept of the video, why you did it, and then how you deal with a lot of that stuff now, because you're very successful. It's not like you you have all these thoughts and then you just use it as an excuse to. Just sit on the couch all day. You still create content. You're still a mom. You're still a business person. You're still a wife. And let's talk about that for a little bit.
0: The video, I, I have these thoughts in my head. And instead of just telling people about them, I wanted to show them. And I thought for sure, once I hit folks on this video, the world's going to know what a crazy person I am. And I was afraid that it would freak people out. And it is my most popular video series to date. But basically the, my brain is holding morning meeting and it's me wearing a shirt that says brain on it. And all around the table are all the different characters that try to mess up my day. And the brain just says, you know, all right, Tiffany's going to be waking up soon. How can we mess up her day? And there's procrastination there, insomnia, anxiety, depression, social anxiety, overeating, like all of these things that build on each other to make to try to make my day set. And I thought that by personifying them, by giving them each an individual personality, it would show people how these things really are in a weird way, working with each other every day to compound our problems and to make things so much worse. And so while I do definitely have all of these things still going on, I, I think identifying what's going on with you And talking to somebody about it who can teach you what to do when you identify those things is crucial. Mm. And so between therapy and talking to doctors and researching these individual things, I've learned different coping mechanisms. Even, I mean, I'm constantly remaining teachable. I have to be. And so yesterday, amidst my mental breakdown that I had yesterday, while I was driving in the car, I decided to listen to a YouTube video about catastrophizing she said that there is a difference between having thoughts and buying them. And it just really stuck with me because I constantly have all of these thoughts. And prior to yesterday, I'm like, okay, there's a thought in my head, that must be mine, I'll take it. There's another one, that must be mine, I'll take it. And I'm collecting all of these things as truth and owning them when I don't have to. I can just let them be and let them pass. She said, like leaves on a stream. And it really helped me yesterday. And the whole point of me saying this is, I learned something new yesterday because I knew I was feeling very flighty and very crazy. And so instead of burying it and saying like it wasn't there, I tried to find the answer. Right, right.
1: Well, I think that's really good, and it's it's powerful when you can really get good at becoming self aware and knowing when you're feeling off. Because I think a lot of people they struggle because they're they're walking like in the dark and just you know reacting based on their subconscious the whole time because yes. they're so unaware of their behavior and what they're saying and what they're feeling that they can never change those thoughts they can never take the time to actually research what's going on and and create new coping strategies or, or new behaviors because they have no idea what's going on
0: right or they, they have depression and they have no desire to which right. I also understand that's a catch twenty two. Like, you know that you need help and something has to change, but you don't have the energy or the desire or the willpower. And it's such a struggle.
1: Right. And depression is a hard thing because I feel like when you're in the thick of it and you're feeling super low, especially if you're scrolling on social media or you have friends that are like going to the gym or doing all these things that you know are good for depression. Like, it's hard for you to relate to that because you're like seven or eight, nine, 10 notches below that right now. Yeah. But what I encourage people to do if they are feeling that way is, yeah, it's okay to feel the feelings and accept where you are in that moment, because that's what I think trips people up is the shame that they attach to the feeling that they're going through. It's like, like, oh my gosh, like, why should I be, why am I anxious? I have everything going for me or why am I depressed? I have a good life or why am I so stressed? And just realizing that's just a healthy part of life. And it happens to you, whether you're using drugs. You're not using drugs. It happens to you whether you're successful or not. And I think what differentiates those who stay in that that place and those that get out fast is accepting that it's part of life and then being like, okay, what are some small things I can do right now to help change my state and make me happier? It could be like going for a drive. It could be going for a 10-minute walk. It could be calling a friend just simple things.
0: Yeah,
1: And that will then... It'll do two things. One, you'll feel better about yourself afterwards because you're like, "Wow, I'm so proud of myself that I got my butt off the couch that I've been sitting on for the last three days, and I move my body." And two, you're gonna get this the natural endorphin rush or whatever from your the brain your brain because you're you know feeding it something good. And I cannot emphasize that enough for people who are feeling down and and knowing that it is okay and that yeah. it's hard and I've been there. But what I do know is staying there makes it worse. Right. And the more you can just take these simple choi- these simple steps, like over time, and I think is what can really help people.
0: Yeah. And I, I always tell people, like, for me, it's like a wave. I don't know if it's the same for everybody across the board, but my depression comes in waves and I like to see it coming And When it's here, I just like float on top of it. I'm like, okay, I know you're here and I'm going to be really gentle and very loving to myself during this time. And I love your advice, but also I, I just take it for you. And if I am feeling like I can't get out of bed, I'll give the kids a lollipop and bring them in the bed with me and we'll have a movie day. And I feel like when I try to pressure myself to do things is when I personally start to feel that shame and like, gosh, you need to get up out of bed. You need to open the blinds. You need to do this. You need to do that. And when I'm telling myself I need to do that, but my body just feels like it can't, that's when I start to feel like a real piece of crap loser. And so, I, I'm i just very, very gentle with myself. But while you're speaking, it made a lot of sense. Like I could see how taking little, even if it's just getting up out of the bed and making it and spraying room spray to make the room s- smell better. Just something small like that, it's like a
1: change of scenery. It might make
0: you feel better. I'm very minimal, minimal moves until it might ready to move.
1: Right. And I definitely also agree with you in that you have to work with where you're at and be comfortable with, and sometimes just take that, that space and that time. I also, I guess, know from my own experience that, you know, sometimes you just have to, you have to put on a different song. And if your default is to just listen to that same song, when you get depressed Mm and say, I'm going to stay in bed and just watch Netflix and I'm going to overeat or, and do all these things that a lot of us do, which Uh again, there's nothing, there's nothing like, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think if you're continuing to feel, don't live there. Yeah. If you're continuing to feel worse long-term after that, then maybe it's like, okay, maybe I can make a change and say, maybe I'll just try this once. It doesn't have to be anything extravagant. You don't have to, you know, go run a marathon. You don't have to go for a 30 minute walk. It's like, I'm just going to go outside and go get the newspaper.
0: Yeah. Nature. For sure. Yeah. And I mean, first and foremost, I always just, so based on my own experience, make sure that, you know, you got like a professional somewhere in your life. Oh, for sure. To help you. Because that was a mistake that I made for a long time trying to fix my own brain. And it never works. And in the, in the meantime, just be gentle with myself. But I do, I know this. I feel so much better when I go out in nature or when I move my body and exercise. is just so hard to get yeah. there. I'm a, I'm a stagnant, sedentary I always have to click that box when it's like, what's your activity level? It's like, what's the one where you don't move? That's <laughs> where I am. But I bought a treadmill. And so we'll, you know, we'll see how-
1: Just like I, I was telling you before we recorded, like just start small, like five minute walk, then next week, six minutes. And the next week, because you're going to build self confidence that way. Like, and I, that's what I think where people make a lot of mistakes. If there's somebody that hasn't moved their body consistently for like 20 years.
0: Mm-hmm. Is they, they
1: try to, to, to get on a workout plan and for somebody who's been doing something for 20 years. Right. And it's just the biggest mistake. It's overwhelming. They, right. And I think once you can just say like, all right, and this is what happens, right. And this is the analogy I always use is if somebody is sitting on the couch and they haven't moved their body for 20 years and they go outside and they just go for a five minute walk or they get on the treadmill for five minutes, ride the bike for five minutes, they're going to feel better about themselves afterwards. And then your brain, your body is going to want more of that. So like, okay, like, that wasn't as bad as I thought it was. So then the next week, you might do seven minutes. The next week, you do 10. And then like three months go by, and now you're running a 5K or you're biking four miles. Where did it come from? It didn't start because you just decided to run a 5K on day one. It started because you decided to take a small step that Mm -hmm. built some self-confidence, that built some self-esteem in you, that carried on with you until the next day. It's about doing the little things over time that will add up to this facade of looking like you you were an overnight success.
0: Right. That makes sense.
1: And so with that said, like one of the things that I really wanted to, to ask you about is, is it seems that you help parents take themselves less seriously and based on your content that you share, right? You're really helping to to take the, the edge off people that, cause I think I, I, I'm not a parent, but I can imagine that when you become a parent, you're like super like, all right, I'm going to raise the best kids possible and I better not mess up. And huh. Right. Yes. So what are some of your best, what are the, some of your best practices that you've done as a parent that have resonated most with, with your audience that you think people will appreciate?
0: Again, I am not an expert, So everybody just keep that in mind. But my opinion is that nobody in the world knows your kid. And you're the only one who knows your kid. And even you might not really know your kid that well because they're constantly growing and changing. And so I think that just being honest about the fact that I have no clue what the frig I'm doing that has really resonated with people. And it's just, it's the truth. My kids are very different. My son is very introverted and kind and sweet. And my daughter will punch me square in the (laughs) face and then like kiss my boo-boo. It's very confusing. So I am constantly going through a Rolodex of like parenting moves that I've seen on the internet. So I'll start with like being very stern with scary eyes and then that doesn't work. So I'll flip to the next one and I get down on their level and I'm like, I see that you punched mommy in the face. And that indicates to me that perhaps you're experiencing some inner turmoil. Let's talk about it. And then to punches me again. So I flip to the next one and it's just constant trial and error. But with the underlying thing for me, is just love. If you love your kids and you give them attention and make sure they know that they're loved then you're doing great man even if the dishes aren't done the laundry aren't done all that stuff everybody talks about on social media I'm still learning as I go and I'm struggling you know still to this day to make sure that my kids know how much I love them because when I'm super stressed or overwhelmed and trying to balance work and home I'm afraid that I might come off as not very loving and so I'm just adjusting my sales constantly and right trying to make sure that uh, they know that they are the light of my life Because they truly are. I never knew how much I could love another person.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, I, I know being a parent, being a mom is something that's near and dear to you and has really changed your life. And I think in a, in a big way has kept you sober and in recovery. I have two more questions for you. Number one is, so like when it comes to, to comedy, like you seem like you you're super funny now and you create all these funny videos. Is this something that's always been like natural for you, or is this something that you just you had to, to learn when you were creating videos? How did this start?
0: I I've always been goofy. My dad was really funny all the time. And he taught me from a very young age that it's okay to be silly and weird, even if other people are around. He would do funny voices and draw things on walls when you're not supposed to. He was on an LSD at the time, but he was still super fun. And he taught me that. It's okay not to be the same as everybody else. And I was like voted class clown in middle school. And so it's always been there. And this for I get to like live my dream of dressing up and playing different characters and being a weirdo and people dig it. So <laughs> it is like a dream come true.
1: That's awesome. So the, the last question I have for you is something that, that really struck me. It was towards the end of your book when you were going and speaking to this group of women. I think it was in a halfway house or a rehab or something. And it, it, I don't, I'm going to butcher the exact quote, but I'm going to give the context. It said, like, just because you want to get high, doesn't mean you have to, it was something like that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, when they're in, especially in early recovery and, and they get the, they get cravings of like, Oh, I I want to get high. So that must mean I'm still an addict. And they go and okay. use, they use that as a, as a way, as an excuse to kind of stay in that same addictive pattern or say just because i'm getting cravings means that i'm still addicted to drugs so it means i must go use what's your advice to somebody now that if they're listening to this and they're continuing to fall in that addictive cycle and they just can't get out of it like what would you say to them
0: yeah wanting to use makes total sense because you're an addict like wanting to use is what makes us addicts and choosing not to is what makes us powerful warriors and it's the difference between life and death and so I think that not using even when you want to is truly the difference between an awesome life and a life of sadness and you know if you're currently struggling and wanting to stop you know if you start tomorrow your life will look completely different a year from now truly and you have no way of knowing now the miracles that are waiting for you. And I think about that all the time. And I tried to end my life in 2012. I could have sat in that jail cell all day long and tried to picture my future. And it would never look nearly as beautiful as it does today. I've got three beautiful kids and a beautiful family. And it's all possible because I admitted that I was powerless over addiction and I reached out for help. And if I can do it, you can
1: too. Boom, what a way to end our conversation, (laughs) Tiffany. This has been amazing. This has been awesome. So I definitely invite people to go buy your book, High Achievers, yes. wherever books are sold. But if people want to connect with you, if they haven't already, and they want to watch some of your, your funny viral videos, like where can they do that?
0: Facebook is my main jam. I've got albums organized. So they're organized by subjects. And the thumbnails all look similar. I've worked really hard on that. So that's why I mentioned it out loud right now. But yeah, you could just Google juggling the Jenkins and I'll pop up and- I really appreciate you having me. You're a wonderful host, by the way. You're, I, you did so much research for this, and I'm not used to that news. I mean, no offense to all the past people who've with me, but you are really great at being knowledgeable about what we're talking about, and that that means a lot to me. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, I appreciate that. I think part of the enjoyment of being a podcast host is being able to to know the guest and really ask different questions that you haven't been asked before, have different conversations because yeah. Yeah, I did. I just think that there's something to be said for shedding light on different parts of somebody's story that maybe aren't shared as much that are relevant more in real time, because sure, you know, your story is inspiring from beginning to end from your childhood through your incarceration to rehab and everything that happened in between. But I think what's even more admirable is how you've, kept it going, you know, and, and what, what practices you've put in place, how you've dealt with parenting, how you deal with real-time trauma or mental health issues now, and how you kind of stay afloat. And I think your honesty, you know, along the way is something that I think is really meaningful. And and a lot of people who are listening to this are really going to, they're going to relate to, to a fair amount of what you said. And, and so for those who are listening, what I want you to do is to share a takeaway. I want you to share something, maybe it was something that Tiffany said about her her childhood and her experience with with drugs maybe it was something that she said about parenting Maybe it was something that she said about you know sharing her story or it was something that she said perhaps about like you know her own mental health whatever it was tag tiffany tag myself because we'd love to hear your feedback we once again thank you for listening to this episode of the adversity advantage i'm your host doug bopes we'll see you next time